Australian musician and performer Jessie Lloyd holds her indigenous culture at the very heart of her creativity. Her show, The Mission Songs Project, was created to showcase traditional Australian First Nations songs. These are songs of dispossession, of loss and displacement from the so-called missions era when Aboriginal people were forcibly removed from their homelands and onto missions. And though this was a time of great hardship and distress, the music is filled with optimism, shining a light on a little explored era in Australia's history. Jessie Lloyd is artist in residence for Galway's Songs from an Open Road Festival. She's been spending time in Galway doing workshops and visiting schools in the area, telling the stories behind the songs and indeed playing the music. And tomorrow night at On Tyviark, she will perform our Mission Songs Project show in collaboration with fellow Aussie Steve Cooney, both of whom I'm delighted to have join me now from our, our studios in Galway. Um, very good to have you with us this evening, Jesse. Tell us a little bit about the origins of, of the Mission Songs Project. I suppose in many ways you have to tell us about the missions themselves to explain that. Uh, hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Um yeah, the Mission Songs Project is very much inspired by my own family, uh, my grandparents, um, who were um, a part of the, um, those removed and relocated to the missions or the reserves, um, particularly my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother was part of the Stolen Generation. Uh, in Australia, there was, a, there was a whole lot of Aboriginal children that, that were being removed from their parents uh, and taken, taken to these places. And um, my family come from a place called Palm Island, uh, just off the coast of Queensland, which is, which is Australia's equivalent to Alcatraz, but um, mm. just for Aboriginal people. And uh, a lot of the Stolen Generation kids were taken there, and um, it was really big motivation for me to to tell my grandmother's story. And um, what when when you talk about your grandmother, just give us a give us a, a date that would give us a sense of when all of this was happening, Jesse. Uh, well, the missions era. So Australia was a British colony. And um, in 1901, it uh, had a federation and it became Australian nation itself, uh, separated from the colonies. And um, so a part of that was the white Australia policy and the assimilation policy that sort of brought in a lot of this legislation that, that affected uh, my people. And it lasted up until about 1967, uh, where um, we had the referendum that recognised uh, Aboriginal rights and Aboriginal people as citizens, because before then... Uh, we weren't citizens. Uh, we were just considered flora and fauna. So post, post-colonialism, effectively what was taken, what was done was the Aboriginal people were rounded up and put on these. The word missions has, has uh, I suppose, con- con- uh, connections or connotations in this country, particularly around, you know, missions from the church proselytizing people was there an, a, a religious element involved in what went on on these um, missions or reservations uh yeah um the missions it, it word is is used in an aboriginal english context which is a, which is a dialect of english in australia and it the mission uh days or the mission zeros it means whether it's a state run settlement or reserve or um, something run by the church. And we had many de- denominations coming in. Um, so there was Lutherans, there, there was Catholics, there was um, Seventh-day Adventists and um, all, all different sort of things. But um, generally the mission days refers to that time and that's that's the context of, in this use. And all convinced, I presume, that what was needed for the Aboriginal people was a, a, a good dose of their religion and civilization that would sort things out. 
Yes, well, the term was um, bringing light to the children of dark. There you go. Bringing light to the children of dark. It's extraordinary <laughs> uh, in the midst of all of that then that we got the music that you have brought uh, with you to, to Galway um, and, and that you've been sharing with people all around Australia and around the world. I think this is the first time that you've come to the UK and Ireland with the, with the project. Yes. Maybe, maybe if, we, if you tell us about one of the songs and if we can hear one of the songs, we'll get a, a better sense of, of what's involved. I'm thinking in particular about the Irex. and This is a reference to a boat, is it? Yeah, so this is a song that kind of really sparked my curiosity. Um, my uh, This is a song that my aunties were singing, and um, I, I'd never heard this song before, and I was like, what's what's this old song? And they said, oh, that's that old song about the boat. So uh, that that um, so all the the people that were, were being sent to Palm Island, which is, uh, which is Australia's Alcatraz, um, this is the boat that they used to send on. And so all of the Stolen Generation children, in, including my grandmother, Travelled on this particular boat to Palm Island, and um, this is a song that the families used to sing when they were saying goodbye to their loved ones or to their children. and And this song travelled all up and down the coast, and and, and a lot of people sang this song because a lot of people were being taken away. And mm. for those who weren't being taken away, this song was sung as as a warning too, that to let people know that you know down the coast kids are being taken. So um, this song had plenty of uses, and 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 we sing it now. Um, as a way to acknowledge our elders and what what happened to them, and um, to um, have their their truth come forward, um, all in all in a beautiful little farewell song, and you can hear the sentiment in the song is is just to wish them well and 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 hope to see them again. So this is the Irix. When the Irix sails away. performed for us this evening in our Galway studios uh, by by Jesse Lloyd uh, and I believe Steve Cooney was in the background there on guitar as well and this is part of the Songs from an Open Road project that Jesse is bringing to Galway audiences um, this weekend in fact before I get to Galway audiences and how things have been received I know you've been out doing workshops in schools and things like that Jesse there's such a wonderful you know sentiment in that song you know you, 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 it feels like there are boats wafting across a wonderful sunny ocean to a beautiful place 
Mm. How would you, how do you marry in your head the kind of the beauty? I know there's a bittersweet feeling in the melody as well, and a bittersweet feeling in the in the strumming of uh, your. Uh, is it a ukulele that you're yeah. that you're playing there? There's a kind of a bittersweetness in 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 there for sure, but it is very beautiful music about a very horrible thing. Let's face it. Well, you know. Um um, these are people singing for their loved ones, and they love them, and um, they, they they wanted the best for them, and whatever that whatever was, you know, was the days ahead. They just hoped that it was um, going to be as, mm. as as good as possible. I mean, you know, the removals, yes, was bad, but also what was happening leading up to the removals was was you know was even more. Uh, more, more hard. Um, there's a thing that my my elders usually say is sometimes they they found sanctuary inside the mission gates because outside the gates was um was open season. So, you know, it's a bit of a catch twenty two. Yeah. Um, out of the frying pan into the fire. So, but the love for family and and uh, is always there, and that that's that's the core of the song. And I, I, I think I, I, I'm not going too far to try to draw conclusions by what you mean by open season. Uh, mm. You you really do mean that getting inside those gates at least meant you were relatively safe. Mm. That is yeah. a, that is that is a frightening that is a frightening story indeed. Um, tell me a little bit then. You've been bringing the story, singing various songs around schools and to, to younger audiences in and around Galway. What kind of reception have you been getting there? Oh, uh, you know what's been really, um, really good, especially in the schools, is is um, being outside of Australia. I, I kind of got to give the context and the history of Australia. And um, the one thing I love about the Irish children is they they understand what I'm talking about when when I, when I say colonisation, and um, it's it's a big relief actually. Uh, and um, you know so. Um, they're they're so curious and they've got some great questions and we've been having really great discussions in the schools, um, so um, it's it's been really inspiring for me to, to to even talk to to the children here about these um, really complex subjects mm. and that that they, they that they get. And the music side within your family, obviously, we think of your grandfather Albigia and your father Jogia, who composed what's referred to as the Aboriginal National Anthem Yilulla, if I'm saying that correctly. Maybe Yilal. Yil, Yilul. Explain what those words mean to me, if you would. Uh, Yilal means to sing, and it's uh, it's in my grandmother's language, Gugiyimajir uh, language, which is from the uh, the top of North Queensland, the, the pointy part. Um, and it's actually the same language that, that we get the word kangaroo. Ah. Um, um, and when you think of Australia, you've got to think of Australia like Europe. It's not all one people. You know, it's different nations, different tribes, completely different languages and, and, and belief systems and social structures. Um, yeah, so um, that, Yilal means to sing and it's, it's, it's from North Queensland mm. and um, the, the same place where the word kangaroo comes from. It's, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, because it is this, even that term First Nation, it is such a vast continent that we're talking about. I remember once being in Australia and driving for, I think it was about five hours, maybe six hours, uh, below, just below Melbourne, is it called the Great Ocean Road along there? Yeah. And when I looked on the map, all I had driven was the, the little bottom line of the E of Melbourne <laughs> on the map, even 
<laughs> no, I've been driving for five or six hours. Is it is it wrong of us even to think of lumping all of these this diversity of cultures that there must be within the Aboriginal people to to lump it into kind of one unit? Yeah, uh, and it's interesting because uh, when I went to to Canada the, the, uh, and obviously North American, American general, they have the same situation, and they got this thing that that's called pan indigenous. So it's kind of like a modern culture that's homogenized of all the different tribes and different nations. And I think maybe Australia's kind of heading that way. But um, uh, leading into the next song, um, we have we do have an Aboriginal flag that represents all of mm. our nations. And, and that did come about in about 1971, a couple of years mm. after the referendum, uh, where we became, uh, Aboriginal people became citizens in Australia. And the flag came and um, that, that flag united our people and, and as one people at, and we do all still come under that flag and uh, my yeah. dad Joe Guy saw how that flag united and and he, he wrote this song Yilal with the same yeah. intent to unite and, and that's why it has become the Aboriginal yeah. anthem in Australia Well uh, just before we go to a, a final performance then um, I may have a brief word with Steve because in fact uh, Jesse mentioning Steve mentioning Joe Guy there uh, who he is originally from Melbourne <laughs> <laughs> that bottom E that I was talking about. You worked uh, with... Hi, with, Sh- hi Steve. Good hi, to Sean. Be- how are you? Not at all. Great to have good, you with good, us good. this evening Thank and you. thanks for coming uh, in. It's an honour to uh, be here with Jessie because I think what she's doing is very important, very historical and I think uh, other people will come after her and do more collections because uh, there's a sense of unification about her work mm. and... Um, there's so much pain involved in the experiences of the people, but what Jessie's doing is b- more than many, just one aspect of what she's doing, but it's putting it in a context where there can be a, 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 can be enveloped in a kind of a positive sense, and it's going to bring a lot of healing to a lot of people, and the people will find their own roots through it. In Australia, with the Aboriginal Indigenous people, I think it's going to be great. And no, it sounds amazing. Just, to, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and you knew, you knew Jessie's dad, Joel. Yeah, I, I knew Joe. Um, I just want to say one thing to when you were talking about pan uh, yeah. Aboriginality, it was always difficult to get a united political voice because there's a thing in Aboriginal law you can speak for your country and you can speak for your mother's country to in certain aspects and you can speak for your father's country, but you can't speak for anyone else's country. You've got law for your country and your mother's country and your father's country. But you can't tell anybody else in a different tribal region what they should be doing with their lives. And there's a kind of there are strict cultural boundaries here that I can speak for my country, but I can't speak for your country. And it's a kind of a t- tremendous politeness and sense of respect. That, mm. But that in itself inhibits the concept of a, of a pan... Uh, political front. Uh, so that's just one of the aspects that, uh, that yeah. isn't considered. Sorry, I just wanted to drop that in. But um, yeah, Joe, I met Joe, 79. I was a, uh, I had become, I lived in the Northern Territory and uh, I went through initiation up there. I went there to learn didgeridoo, but yeah. Um, and um, I was a studio musician in Melbourne. And we considered ourselves pretty cool. Uh, the studio musicians were pretty elitist. But, uh, but when the elders kind of told me to go, 
go to the land of my ancestors and learn the indigenous culture of the ancestors. I went to Cairns for six months. I needed to chill out and drop my ego. So I went to Cairns for six months just to drop my ego and before I came to Ireland. And uh, that's where I met Joe. We were hanging out together yeah. in Cairns. And he uh, visited me in Ireland, stayed with me and on one memorable occasion down in Kerry. He used to laugh because I lived in a very bush kind of style on top of a mountain <laughs> on Seamus Begley's farm in, in Mobile Home on the edge of a cliff. And he used to laugh at me, you know, the white fellow living bush style. In, in this. <laughs> but um, he said to me, uh, he had this song and uh, there was a Letterkenny Song Festival and he said, come and play with me and uh, if I win, I'll split the money with you. So I, I drove him from Dingle to Letterkenny and sure enough, he won the competition and he split the money. Fair play to him. But <laughs> that was go. the song Yilal, which, uh, <laughs> as you say, is a kind of a national anthem. Yeah, right. it's, uh, it's a very positive yeah. kind of song. Lovely, lovely sound too. Are we, are we finishing up with, uh, with is it Bunyanut, the song that you're going to sing for us, uh, Jesse, or Yilal, or which are you going to do? <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll do we'll Yellow. We'll do Yellow. Do Yellow. Yeah, that'd be lovely. Thank you so much. Listen, to, uh, well, I'll say goodbye and thanks after I listen to the song. But let's let's listen to Yellow then. Absolutely beautiful. Yilolay there, Yilolay, the um, the Aboriginal National Anthem composed by Joe Gay, sung for us this evening uh, live from our Galway studios by Jesse Lloyd and Steve Cooney doing some wonderful bass didgeridoo style voice <laughs> in the background there as well, Steve. Good morning, Steve, because I was going to say, uh, I, I know how to say Gurumahagat and I know how to say Slán uh, as a greeting or farewell to Jesse, but perhaps there's a an Aboriginal greeting that you could you could teach me, Jesse, if I can get my tongue around it for a simple farewell. Uh, slán is the easy; it's an easy in Irish. It's just a single syllable. Slán. Slán. And what can you what can you what can you? Yeah. Oh well, multiple languages, but um, grandmother's language is Yalada. Yalada's hello, or um, um, grandfather's language is Midakid. Well, I'll go with Yalada. <laughs> and 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 goodbye is Yawo. 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 Yeah, Yawa, Slán August Yawa. Thank Yawa. you so much, uh, Jesse Thank and you. Steve, for, for being with us this evening. Sean, Steve Cooney. Steve Cooney there and Jesse Lloyd. And what a joy that was uh, performing for us in our Galway studios. And thanks to our colleague in Galway, John Doyle, for helping us with that. Jesse and Steve performed together at uh, on Tyviark tomorrow evening, 7.30, as part of the Songs from an Open Road Festival of Global Music taking place across the city of Galway this week. And what a joy, joyous festival of music that sounds like. Visit songsfromanopenroad.com to find out more.
Sounding Shiana is a celebration of music at the uh, at, oh, where, at the University of Limerick to mark its 50th year. The All-Star Concert takes place on November the 24th, starring Grammy Award winning winner, uh, Grammy Award winner rather, Rain and Giddens, the, the Irish Chamber Orchestra and Willa Nicaoli, Libra Strings led by ICO's Diane Daly and as well as artists, scholars from the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance. And Music and Dance, of course, brings us into um, Brendan the Galley, former River Dance principal who is curating this festival. Creelor Mochri is one of two newly commissioned works for the concert based on Vivaldi's aria Vedro con mio deletto. Uh, more of Vivaldi's aria and Creelor Mochri in, in a minute. I'm calling it a festival. It's 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 a concert that you, you're not doing a whole festival that I'm, that I'm oh, not, and I've I'm now got you curating Brenda. But I'm Irish. not curating the entire concert either. I'm just responsible for the Irish World Academy co- ah, right. contribution. Yeah, because yeah, you're, you're now, uh, what's the correct word for what you are? In I'm a lecturer in dance and ethnocoreology in the Irish World Academy now, yeah. Because, I don't know, you were, were you doing the PhD the last stage, the last time we were talking? I can't no, remember. No, I qualified actually nearly 10 years ago. So I've been long, in here yeah. quite a few times since then. But um, I kind of spent, well, I mean, one of the things that one of the people that worked with me uh, said, don't go into academia too soon. You have too many things to do from yeah. a performance element. And I had my own company, Eru, and we, in those intervening years we've done we've made about 10 pieces but it just the um, I was covering for a sabbatical and then some sick leave and then the job came up and I thought in my early 50s is the time to do a nine to five and I and I went with it because I did miss the discourse I missed the um, you know dealing with them and, and, and those conversations that I have with those great colleagues that I have down there and I think it was the right time for me to do it and it complements what I do in a way anyway because I'm I'm, the, I'm I'm coordinating the BA in Irish Dance and I have a lot to do with the MA in Irish Dance performance as well so it's a great sort of place to incubate and to think yeah. about ideas and do research and action I guess. Yeah, and, and, and I, I guess that bringing together, because it's what you've done all along, I suppose, in your dance practice, yet very much, I suppose, from the practical side of things, you have brought all of these various influences in. And in many ways, many of the th- pieces that you've made have been about exploring our own traditional dance and trying to, you know... D- move the outer edges of that dance into new places. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, again, like I was using the practice as, as a way of saying something about, I suppose, my authentic identity rather than my, you know, cultural identity mm. or my kind of sense of Irishness. I mean, that would be a very small fraction of what I see or what that ma- how that matters to me. And then the work we do becomes very much dance theatre, more so than kind of like displays of Irish dancing. I'd be very interested in the Irish dancing body and how that body moves and that movement quality and then what can be done with it. Mm. And then the, the whole area of collaboration and kind of working outside the aesthetic, but also with people who come from different disciplines. That excites me tremendously. So let me think. I think I've got it right now. So Sounding Sheena is the overall this thing the concert, here. yeah. Yeah, that's the... And, and Creelor Mochree is the specific section that, that you're involved in. Yes, right, yeah. Uh, sounding Shona, I suppose, it is, is, yeah. is, is the, the Shannon is a reference to the, to, yeah. to the Shannon River. Creelor Mochree, the very centre, the inside, the core of the, my heart. Absolutely. Is that where you're digging into here? Absolutely. And it, I think what... So Professor Helen Phelan asked me would I make the piece... Uh, when I was in for my performance review and I thought it was a great honour to do it but I really wanted you know at the time the concert for Michael Sulawan was coming up for the, in an Irish yeah. uh, at the National Concert Hall but also at the mm. University Concert Hall and I was reading a lot and I was remembering a lot of my own interactions with um, 
with Michal O'Sullivan and, and what he wanted for the Irish World Academy because he had the opportunity to be stay in Cork and be the chair of music in Cork yeah. or come to the Irish World or to the University, University of Limerick, of Limerick yeah. and because classical music is so the, the, the main event when it comes to music in universities he had an opportunity for this parity of esteem mm. as, he, as he always talked about in all the different traditions dance, music and otherwise kind of growing from a greenfield site at the one time. And I wanted to kind of, I suppose, honour that. And it's something that I care about is that I'm, I'm an enthusiast of all dance and of all music. And I'm a, very, and I'm a little bit of a, an anorak when it comes to sort of a renaissance and kind of rock music. And that's why I kind of went with the Vivaldi. Vivaldi yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, just before we move off, Miola Sudan, I was, it was last week on, on, on my programme on, on Lyric, I was marking the fourth anniversary of Michal Sudan's death. It's kind of hard to believe that, it, that a full four years have passed. But the influence that yeah. he has had in, in, in how you just described it, even the influence that he has had in terms of dance and music practice in this country, it's, it's unfortunate fathomable really isn't it and what he's done from, from from the point of view of music and dance and scholarship mm. and, and seeing it as epistemic and kind of you know knowledge generating and you know his work on that and, and his vision I just thought he was a visionary and I and I learned a tremendous amount by just being in his company and hearing what he had to say Let's have a listen then to a little bit of Vivaldi, which he would approve of enormously that we would be listening across uh, very different genres of music. Now, I, I have a version here with Cecilia Bartoli singing. Let's have a listen to it first. Because what it'll do really is give us a sense of the aria and maybe we can see how you worked out from that into the dance pieces that you created. <laughs> But there we have a, a little snippet of Cecilia Bartoli and the aria Vedro con mio Diletto, which is the centerpiece, Brenda, on the galley of, of this work that you're doing, Creelor Macri, if you like. This is the, the Creelor mm-hmm. of the piece itself. T- tell me a little bit about the aria and what you're doing, what's been done with that, and then what you're doing with the dance on either side of it. So um, it's in three sections, and that is the middle section. So with my colleague Diane Daly and her string ensemble, she mm. um, they're playing it. And rather than go with initially, I worked, I found a, a very of this with a countertenor and I love the countertenor voice uh, Philippe Jaroski Gir- and um, and I kind of created some uh, dance around it now again it would be Irish dancing but it was percussive but in bare feet it was yes. almost lazy and juicy and there's something ab- ab- about it, what came off that and I wanted to use that as a starting point but rather than go with a countertenor um, a, a friend from home and who's also an alumni of the uh, Irish World Academy is Dominic McGillivrige he's a Corny Riardo winning um, channel singer and I uh, well, so we translated it and he's going to sing it in Irish with the kind of classical strings and then I'm incorporating the contemporary dancers of the Masters programme in the Irish World Academy weaving through for me it was about kind of celebrating what's common and, and what kind of I suppose unites us as musicians and dancers regardless of where we come from but it, it was the polyphony it was the weaving of, um, of lines of music and to me it was visual weaving of bodies um, very much kind of mm. um, uh, kind of complementing each other um, but this, this is flat with some contemporary so of a colleague Dr Owen Callerine one of his PhD students is creating this kind of soundscape but having sampled the strings and kind of bringing them to a new place So we have contemporary music contemporary dance Shannon singing Vivaldi's music and traditional Irish dance Absolutely and, uh, all mixed into one place. This is Michal O'Sullivan. It was Michal O'Sullivan's heartland, isn't it, <laughs> yeah. really? Well, I, well I mean, again, it's, um, it was something that I thought 
it, mm. it would bring us um, it would bring all the elements of what that place does together in a really beautiful way now we're still building it and I'm still kind of in the process of rehearsing it so I'm nervously <laughs> I can pal- see you panicking yeah. is that what I'm doing yeah. am I doing all of but those it, things um, but the vision of what, what, I, what I hear and see in my head yeah. it seems like it will yeah. work <laughs> well what you're communicating and hearing and seeing in your head seems like it will work as well Brendan Brendan the galley there and sounding Shona is a celebration of music as I said at the University of Limerick to mark its 50th year and a part of that concert will be the Cree Lorma Cree piece that Brendan the Galley has just described to us. The concert takes place on November the 24th and uh, features those newly commissioned pieces curated by Brendan the Galley. Lou Reed left the Velvet Underground in 1970 disillusioned with New York. He went to London, released his debut album, Complete Flop. With his second album, however, Transformer, he decided to take a chance on a couple of producers, one of whom had never produced a record before and the other of whom had only produced his own music. They were Mick Ronson and David Bowie. Bowie was a massive fan of Reed's, having been majorly influenced by the Velvet Underground. The resulting album was not a flop and, among other things, it included this song. Just a perfect day Problems all left alone Weekenders on our own It's such fun Just a perfect day You made me forget myself I thought I was someone else, someone good. Oh, it's such a perfect day. Yes, indeed. Perfect day from Lou Reed's Transformer, an album that was released 50 years ago this month. And Mr. Paul McLuhan is with me in studio to discuss whether a perfect day comes from a perfect album or not. You know what? I hadn't thought about it that way, but if there is a candidate for a perfect record, this would certainly be, well, there are probably several candidates, but this would certainly Mm. be one of them in my book. Yeah, it just works so well as a suite of songs and uh, there are very, very few kind of weak moments on it. There are a couple of throwaways, but they kind of work within the whole structure of the thing. So I think it's just a perfectly paced album, beautifully recorded, great songs. And yeah, if that means a perfect album, then yeah, fair enough. 11 songs, 36 minutes and 51 seconds, according to Spotify. You know what? That's kind of... That's what you need to be at, isn't it? I have a theory about um, albums and overlong albums. And I think we as humans, for whatever reason, maybe it's an arbitrary thing, but I think an album coming in somewhere between half an hour and 40 minutes is the perfect length for an album. Just for me, anyway, yeah. speaking of perfect. Yeah. So it's, it's perfect on that <laughs> score too. All right. Let's, uh, let's get a sense of where Lou Reed was at. As I mentioned in the introduction, Paul, he, in 72, we're talking about here, he'd left the Velvet Underground in 1970. Totally disillusioned with everything happening in New York. Was he that down in the dumps about all of that? Yes, he was. And in fact, he, he walked away from the music business completely for a spell and went to, went back to, uh, I think, Long Island to, to work for his, his father's accountancy firm. Um, and, you know, he had been through... I mean, with the Velvet Underground, just mm. to quickly rewind, he'd, he'd made four of what are now considered to be yeah. absolute classic albums, influenced absolutely everybody that's come in their wake. Um, but he had very little to show for that materially or indeed just in terms of the kudos um, from it. They were very overlooked and the usual kind of almost textbook 
textbook stuff, you know, infighting with, with the various individuals in the band. A lot of that stoked by Reed himself, it has to be said. Um, also kind of record company troubles, managerial troubles, all that usual stew of disaffection. Yeah. And Reed famously just walked out of the band the night the Velvets recorded their posthumous live album, Live at Max's Kansas City, where they were doing a, um, a residency in New York at the time and just walked out of the band and end that the... that was the end of the well it wasn't the end of the Velvets they sort of stumbled yeah. on without him but the it, end of Lou effectively Reed. the end of the Velvets uh, with, as with far him. as Lou Reed's concerned yeah <laughs> you know I, I suppose everybody has to be unknown at, at some point in their life when they become superstars later of on of course Mick Ronson and David Bowie I mean how first of all it, how lucky was he but it's a kind of it's a it's a threesome made in heaven that really, absolutely it? and it comes down to there, there was a week in 1971 where Bowie really kind of looked out he he met Lou Reed he, this, the very same week he also met Iggy Pop who he'd go on to, to collaborate with yeah. um, more extensively than Reed as it would turn out and also it was the week of the notoriously awkward encounter between uh, Bowie and Andy Warhol at the factory uh, which didn't go well at all much to Bowie's uh, embarrassment and and I think absolutely, I think he was rather aghast actually that, that uh, he and Warhol didn't hit it off he and Lou Reed managed to hit it off he was already a fan. He'd been introduced to the Velvet Underground as far back as 1966 or 1967 um, by his then manager, Ken Pitt. Mm. With the, he, was, he often boasted that he was possibly the first person in the UK, in England, to, to own a copy of the Velvet Underground in Nico. I don't know if that's true, but he often said it was. I, and um, that kind of, I suppose, if we think of the transgressive nature of what Bowie maybe had, certainly came to do in, in his career eventually, yeah. was that part of the, if you like, the connection point with Lou Reed, yeah, would you say? I think Bowie sensed in Lou Reed someone who had ambitions for the art form without getting too sort of haughty about it but ambitions for rock and roll as an art form that were similar in, in scope to his you know someone who was trying to lift it out of just saying very ordinary twee things and, and trying to say something a bit more serious a bit more considered a bit more literary and a bit more transgressive indeed um, than, than had hitherto been the case perhaps Yeah, Let's have a listen to Satellite of Love you might be, you might be surprised what they're getting up to when you listen carefully to the lyrics of this song and if you're worried about uh, people listening carefully to the lyrics of this song then now might be the time to stop them listening to them I watched it for a little while I love to watch things on TV Harry, Mark and John Monday and Tuesday Wednesday to Thursday With Harry, Mark and John Satellites Weekdays were different in 1972, clearly, yeah, a, on the basis of Satellite of Love, Paul anticipating, anticipating Craig David by some decades, I think. Um, yeah, so Satellite Love. By the way, that's Mick Ronson on recorder in the background there. Oh, right. I mean, Ronson's contribution to this album is 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 enormous. Bowie obviously gets all the plaudits because, you know, it was Lou Reed. He hooks up with David Bowie. Nobody, nobody on earth is hotter than David Bowie in 1972. So you're absolutely right. Lou Reed is very, very lucky. Uh, but Bowie's something of a, an untested un- mm. quantity in terms of production so still a bit of a leap in the dark for Lou but yeah, at this well, stage he just wanted a hit so. and, and it, it, we have a clip here of Lou Reed talking about Bowie well, on backing vocals in fact on that track in there as well very high notes I don't know if we have got to, there's a high note very high note towards the end but you get a bit of sense of it in that but here's Lou Reed talking about what Bowie added to the track Satellite of Love 
David's amazing at background vocal parts, that bong, bong, bong. That's okay, it's really great, but the really great thing is the high note at the end. I mean, very few people could do that. I just loved when he did that. It's just, I mean, what a move. I mean, you see, I think everything is really about details, and that was the exclamation mark, I thought. Like when he goes up like that, very few people could do that. Really pure and beautiful. There he goes. Isn't that great? Yeah, I suppose he's right, it is great. But Lou Reed there talking about David Bowie and but pointing out just how great the song is in the process as well, Paul. Well, he was never without ego, in fairness, Lou. But he's right as well. It is a great song. And Bowie's vocal arrangement there, quite ingenious, quite quite different because they're basically doing what a brass section would normally mm. do yeah. if you were producing a record. But maybe they just didn't have the money for a brass section. I don't know. But Bowie just deciding to do the brass section with, you know, I don't know how many, 16... 24 David Bowie's yeah. I mean that is kind of genius yeah. and it works so well it, work, it works really well um, you, you, had, you were mentioning about you know the way not the Velvet Underground didn't end but the way Lou Reed's association with them ended and that it was quite fractious and all of the rest and there were all sorts of uh, it's, it, tantrums have been thrown yeah. sound, I, I think Lou Reed was a very different man in this studio yeah, I, the, Lou, I mean, I've heard differing accounts. I actually interviewed the, the guy who engineered this. Credit to him as well, by the way, Ken mm. Scott, the guy who was working with Bowie regularly at that time, um, put the sound of the album together. And a fine job he's done. It's part of the reason why it still stands up. It's such a beautifully yeah. clean and clear recording. Uh, but Ken Scott told me that Lou was kind of a bit zoned out during the making of the record. And in fact, it was really a case of him and Ronson and Bowie and the musicians and you know all the various contributing musicians getting mm. together, doing the arrangements, putting the tracks together, and then Lou would just come in and sort of do the vocal um, and he said Lou was quite uninvolved which surprised me because I mean it's such a record that is so synonymous with Lou Reed yeah. um, I was surprised a little shocked to hear that he wasn't particularly engaged with the making of it then again that can work you know yeah, just, I, although the, I I'm just going to sing yeah you know? I have a clip here of Mick Ronson which partially explains some aspect of, of what your pal was saying to you uh, Mick Ronson talking about working in the studio with Lou Reed and you'll hear Lou Reed talking about the difficulties that he had with Mick Ronson, but perhaps not the type of difficulties that we normally associate with recording studios and band rows. You know, Lou was so laid back, you know, you kind of walk into the studio, and go, hey, you know, like sort of sit down in the chair, put his guitar on, and be all out of tune, you know. Hey, big, are we ready? You know, like, this guitar's like, way out of tune, you know, way out of tune. And I kind of wander off and I kind of, you know, chewing it up a bit. And Lou used to look at me like, you know, OK, you know. He didn't really care whether it was in tune or whether it was out of tune, really. He just kind of wanted to sing the song, you know. The thing with Rano is I could very rarely understand a word he said. He had a whole accent. He'd have, he'd have to repeat things five times. But a really sweet guy. Great guitar player, really sweet guy. Not so out. Just couldn't make out a word he was saying. Hey, to Hello, get on, kid. Yeah, uh, yeah, I could, uh, yeah, I could see that, and uh, it's great to hear Lou kind of uh, giving giving Mick his due, Mick yeah, Ronson's due on praise. that because he really did contribute so much. To uh, we we played um, Perfect Day earlier earlier on, and of course 
famous for uh, for to younger audiences who don't remember the release of the album 50 years ago for its use in train spotting uh, and the character of Renton and Ewan McGregor that whole myth about or that whole story about about it being about heroin that's been debunked I think hasn't it yeah I think not least Billy Reid himself and mm. uh, do you know what I am prepared to accept you know there's always a temptation particularly with someone who's notoriously associated with drugs as Lou Reed undoubtedly was um, to read that into oh, no pun yeah. intended read that into all sorts of aspects of his lyrics and sometimes a beautiful song about a beautiful day spent with someone you really like is, is simply what it appears to yeah. be so yeah. I have a different kind exactly um, what is the legacy of the album will we, will we still be talking about it well you and I won't but will somebody <laughs> still be talking about <laughs> it in 50 years time um, yeah I think I think we will I think it's gone past that sort of point now where you know I think albums as we get further and further mm. away from the, the origin of these things certain things just hang in there and I think Transformer has certainly earned its earned its place mm. it'll, it'll always be in the you know those dreaded Rolling Stone top 200s or whatever you know I yeah. think it's always going to be there or thereabouts and if Perfect Day is going to be in one of those top 200 tracks I'm guessing Walk on the Wild Side will be too it's got to be really timeless Miami FLA Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey Take a walk on the wild side Ah yes, uh, take a walk on the wild side. All sorts of transgressive lyrics in in the midst of all of that, Paul. Maybe yeah, and, and, and if you weren't paying attention, we can't help you. Yes, yeah, not our fault. And and the do do we do is they obviously they decided to give not all of them to David Bowie. They gave it to some other backing singers as well. It's <laughs> most generous of them when you think about it. Uh, Paul McLoon, thanks for coming in, Paul. Cheers. Marking the fiftieth anniversary of Lou Reed's Transformer. Uh, Fifty years ago, this very month, uh, 